Listeners of the Bitch Media Podcasts care about society and our future. And so does Oregon State University. Today's workplace requires employees who think creatively and dig for the big insights that drive change. So expand your passion with the skills that will allow you to be a leader in political science. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash political. Hi, podcast friends. So as you know, we're taking July off from making new original podcast episodes so that we could gather feedback from all of you and get ahead on making some awesome brand new episodes. Our next new episode launches August 4th. Just in time for the wild spectacle that is the Olympics, that new episode will explore sports and capitalism. But I know a lot of you rely on the show to keep you company during those long commutes and while cooking dinner and while doing some kind of mind-numbing work. So to tide you over, I put together this little best of show from some of my favorite interviews and stories about nerds. We have three stories on today's show about geek culture, and they all originally aired at least a year ago on Propaganda. So hopefully they'll be new to a lot of you, or maybe you already forgot about them if you've been a longtime listener. On this best of episode, we'll explore the often overlooked history of women working in the comics industry, then debunk five myths about women in video games, and then talk with the amazing scholar and activist Melita Imarisha about peace, justice, and Octavia Butler. Stay tuned. In the 1990s, I grew up reading comics, and so did a lot of my friends, male and female. Calvin and Hobbes, Tintin, Gru. In elementary school, comics were a love shared by all. It wasn't until I got to high school and started going to comic book stores that I noticed something weird. Sometimes I'd go into a comic book shop, and I'd be the only girl in there. Comics, it turned out, were a boy thing. Oh, that was a surprise to me. And it wasn't always this way. Over the past 120 years, the gender dynamics of the comics industry have often been in flux. Writer Lisa Hicks researched the history of how gender in the comics industry transformed over time. She wrote a big article on the topic for Collectors Weekly. As we discussed, the image of the comics industry as having always been male-centric and male-dominated is not the whole picture. Instead, there's a lot of history that's left out of that frame. This story begins in 1895, when the New York world published the nation's first modern comic strip, Hogan's Alley, by Richard Occult. Back in those days, comics around the turn of the century, comics were for everyone. And kids read them, adults read them, and it wasn't considered a male genre for people, something that only men enjoyed or only boys enjoyed. So. It, didn't, it just followed that women would be able to draw comics as well. Contrary to popular belief, women were part of the comics industry from the start. Just one year after the world started publishing Hogan's Alley, a 20-year-old artist named Rose O'Neill started publishing a comic in a magazine called Truth. 
Her comic, The Old Subscriber Calls, was about an angry newspaper reader who stops by the editorial office to wallop an editor. The most popular trend at the time was to draw cute children. It was just a big fad at the time, and postcards featured cute children. A lot of them were just kind of the antics of these little kids, and that was the trend at the time. Rose O'Neill went on from writing about angry newspaper readers to creating the iconic kid characters, the Cupies. A Cupie is um, an elven or angel creature that looks like a fat baby doll. <laughs> so, like, these became dolls. They became, like, maybe the first comics merchandise. Yes, they became comic strips. They became, you know, they were used for advertisements. They were just tremendously popular characters. She wasn't the only woman finding success in comics at the time, either. Pretty quickly after Rose O'Neill, a woman whose name was Grace Gabby, she later became known as uh, Grace Drayton, she published a comic in 1903 called Naughty Toodles. Naughty Toodles? Yes, which was another cute little toddler. I mean, that sounds really dirty to us right now, but back then, <laughs> it was completely innocent. I feel like... The Naughty Toodles comic today would be very different from the <laughs> Naughty Toodle yes. comic of 1903. But uh, as Grace Drayton, she became very famous because she continued to draw comic strips with adorable children that had all sorts of cutesy names. And eventually she created the Campbell's Kids, which were became very famous advertising characters. Oh, yeah, those round-cheeked, rosy-faced kids yeah, who yeah. love soup. Soup, yeah, exactly. <laughs> In the 1910s and 20s, women started drawing popular comics about young women having adventures in big cities. There were a couple comics featuring flappers exploring the expanding freedoms available to white women who had a bit of money at the time. Female comics artists also used their talents to support suffrage, making campaign signs and popular pro-suffrage postcards. In 1937, talented African-American artist Jackie Orms hit the scene with a comic strip about an independent and adventurous heroine named Torchy Brown. Which was about a young woman who moved from the farm in the South to become a singer and dancer at the Cotton Club in New York City. And so that comic lasted about three years. And then in the 50s, uh, Jackie Orms brought Torchy Brown back in a comic strip known as Heartbeats. And this one was more of an action-adventure comic strip, but it dealt with race segregation and environmental issues in a way most comic strips did not. Torchy Brown appeared first in the Pittsburgh Courier and then got picked up by 14 other black-owned newspapers around the country. Throughout the 1940s, Orms worked on a different comic series, a little sister, big sister story called Patty Joe and Ginger. But Torchy Brown returned in the 1950s and was a hit with the comics accompanied by fashionable paper doll cutouts. He was a famous trumpet man from our Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was the top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B. Leading up to World War II, comics started to change, from stories about cute kids and big city adventures to darker plot lines revolving around heroes and crime fighting. In the 1930s, someone got the bright idea to start collecting comic strips into books. Yeah, so, so the books were usually uh, these anthologies of just various, you know, crime stories or detective stories. They're kind of based on Pulp Fiction, a lot of them. And you would have action comics or detective comics and these titles that wouldn't necessarily be based on one character. 
So in it, you would have multiple characters, and the first Superman appeared in a comic called Action Comics, and was just simply one story among many stories. We read a lot about the creators of Superman and Batman, but in the run-up to World War II, there were women making action hero comics too. In 1939, this female artist by the name of Tarp Mills, her original name, I believe, had been June Mills, and she started drawing action heroes and creating action heroes such as Daredevil, Barry Finn, the Purple Zombie, and Catman. I've never heard of uh, Purple Zombie or Catman. <laughs> what were these heroes like? Do you know? Uh, you know, I know there were so many. Uh, that's the thing. People were just churning them out, and uh, just, there's just so few have survived. After creating a bunch of male action heroes, artist Tarp Mills turned her attention to Miss Fury, a socialite who by night would fight bad guys and solve mysteries while wearing the costume of a panther. Miss Fury inspired many other costumed superheroes. So there was Phantom Lady, Miss Mask, Spider Widow, all these really fascinating... Spider Widow? Yeah. They were all... Not related to Spider-Man? Not at all, no. Most of them were just wealthy women who put on costumes and fought crime because it was fun, and that, that was kind of where they got to be their true selves. Another hero of the time was intrepid and glamorous newspaper reporter Brenda Starr, who female artist Dale Messick debuted in 1940. And she drew the strip about this reporter, um, who was a very beautiful, stylish woman, but also very independent and spirited, who went on a lot of adventures and um, questioned a lot of the establishment. The interesting thing is that men had never had a problem before with women drawing these cute kids or flappers, but at the time, Brenda Starr cu- created this huge uproar because she was a female character and a fe- drawn by a female artist in a male-dominated genre, which was action-adventure. Though she got pushback from male creators, at the height of Brenda Starr's success, her bulldog reporting was seen and printed in more than 250 newspapers. And then, of course, in 1941, Wonder Woman made her debut snaring violent warmongers in her golden lasso of truth. World War II was a hot time for superheroes, and as many men working in the industry were sent overseas, numerous female artists and writers got the chance to start working in comics. All the day long where the rain does shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie. There were superheroes, and there were also women who were simply war heroes. And a lot of the men who were comic book artists were sent overseas, and women took their place. While the men were overseas, they were also reading a lot of comics. So there was a huge market, and women here in the home front had an opportunity to write stories about women as heroes. Barbara Hall created a character called Blonde Bomber and a comic called Girl Commandos, which featured multiple women heroes of all different ethnicities. Um, yeah, what I am curious about Girl Commandos. What happened in Girl Commandos? Trina Robbins describes it as this female United Nations commando group. <laughs> that sounds awesome. And each, each woman represented a different country that was being attacked by the Nazis and they all came together to fight the Nazis. But when the war ended, 
comics went the way of many industries in the United States. Well, so when the men came back from the war, they wanted their jobs back. Most of the women had been hired on contract, so they just didn't get rehired, basically lost their jobs. And the heroes the women were drawing just disappeared. The switch was so pronounced that when the National Cartoonist Society was formed in 1946, the all-male group excluded women. Cartoonist Hilda Terry sent the group a letter saying they needed to either let women in or change the name of the group to the National Male Cartoonist Society. After she refused to drop the issue, the society finally let her in, and a couple other women too. Comics at the time were rife with juicy storylines. There were popular horror comics, pulpy crime comics, and steamy romance comics. Then, in 1954, the industry transformed again. The real question is this. Are comic books good, or are they not good? If you want to raise a generation that is half stormtroopers and half cannon fodder with a dash of illiteracy, then comic books are good. In fact, they are perfect. In 1954, psychiatrist Frederick Wortham published a book called Seduction of the Innocent. It immediately caught the nation's attention. And one of the things he said that was that Wonder Woman uh, was, her independence uh, was damaging to both men and women. She was seen as an emasculating figure who encouraged lesbianism. And he said that comics in general encouraged juvenile delinquency. Fearing that comic books would be banned or regulated by the government, the major comic book publishers wrote up a list of rules called the Comics Code. The publishers agreed that they would not print books that contained violence, obvious sexuality, or any homosexuality. At this time, Wonder Woman lost a lot of her BDSM overtones. And just to make it clear that there was nothing romantic going on between Batman and Robin, DC introduced Batwoman, whose utility purse was full of weapons disguised as lipstick, charm bracelets, and hairnets. The numerous pulpy crime fighters of yesteryear faded away, and mainstream comics became squeaky clean stories for kids. A decade later, edgier artists who wanted to make something not so clean and government approved started producing and distributing their own comics. The genre of underground comics was born. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right, I got a real bone. My great grandma didn't like to foxtrot. Now, instead, she spit it's nothing boogie-tramble-tramble. Headquartered in San Francisco and publishing innovative and mind-bending collections like Zap Comics and strips like The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, the underground comic scene was boundary-pushing and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. But the scene was not very welcoming to women. Right. Well, it's interesting because at the time, some of the most prominent underground comics artists were um, Robert Crumb and Gilbert Shelton, uh, Vaughn Bodie, and their depiction of women was often very violent or uh, very exploitive. Artist Trina Robbins, who went on to write a history of women in comics called Pretty in Ink, was just getting her start at the time. Trina Robbins told Lisa Hicks about what it was like to be part of the San Francisco alternative comic scene in the late 1960s and early 1970s. She was telling me about how she came to San Francisco hoping to join the underground comic scene and really felt shut out and not included, and specifically by the male cartoonist 
whom she feels were really threatened by women's liberation. And she said that the publishers, um, including the print mint and last gasp were actually very friendly to women comic artists, but that the men, um, were holding onto their privilege and felt very threatened that their privilege was very threatened by, um, having to listen to women's voices. So Trina Robbins and other women who wanted to make underground comics at the time started printing their own comics and making their own scene. The Berkeley-based feminist newspaper It Ain't Me, Babe, printed some of her comics and they put together a book of all women's comics. In 1972, Last Gasp Publishing printed the book Women's Comics. That's W-I-M-M-E-N-S and comics with an X. The comics were a range of visual styles, some trippy, some psychedelic art, some pen and ink, and dealt with a bunch of different topics, including dating, queerness, and being a hippie. Despite the skepticism of the dudes, women's comics was a huge hit. The anthology wasn't a flash in the pan. It ran all the way from 1972 to 1992. Women's comics wasn't the only outlet for women in the underground comics scene. Other women artists printed their comics in small newspapers or made their own series, like Joyce Farmer and Lynn Chevalier, who started up a raunchy and joyfully sexual women's comics anthology they called Tits and Clits. It ran for 15 years. They were sold usually in head shops, and usually they sold out every run they had. Um, but it eventually it got harder and harder to find the comics. So women wanted to read them but getting the distribution got harder. Throughout the late 1970s and 1980s, the industry of comics kept changing. Newsstands stopped carrying comics as much, and the people who had grown up reading comic books were now adults with money of their own to spend. A new genre of stores opened called comic book stores, and um, it's interesting because I have friends who own a comic book store, and they're great, so it's not a generalization I'd make about all comic book stores, but I think at the time... Um, a lot of them that opened were focused on superheroes and focused on uh, male customers. Comic book shops in the 1980s were notoriously not welcoming to women. Culturally, many female fans say they felt excluded and sneered at in the stores. Comics geared toward women were not likely to find much shelf space since the people who ran the comics shops were mostly guys who'd grown up on superhero comics, not avid fans of tits and clits. Within the mainstream industry, it was just as bad. At one point in the 1980s, the major publishers, DC and Marvel, had only one woman in creative between them. You'd be more likely to find women doing comics in alt-weekly newspapers. Linda Berry and Alison Bechtel both published their innovative comics in weekly papers at this time. Their pen and ink style and personal stories ran counter to the mainstream comics trend at the time. At Marvel and DC, stories about macho men were king. Publishers wanted stories of heroes who could be easily turned into a goldmine of figurines, TV shows, and highly profitable merchandise. Women, when they appeared at all in these stories, were not intrepid girl commandos or daring and dapper reporters, but busty broads who contorted on collectible covers as nothing more than eye candy. But even Conan didn't have the strength to hold on to the industry forever. 
In the early 1990s, women in the comics industry started organizing to meet up and support each other. After a packed all-women meetup at San Diego Comic-Con, they formed a group called Friends of Lulu. Meanwhile, it was getting easier than ever to make your own comics. With the rise of Riot Girl and DIY culture in the early 1990s, many young women started making and Xeroxing their own stories. So you had these sort of rough and arty, um, punky almost kind of comics, and some of these included um, Mary Fleener's Slutburger, Megan Kelso's Girl Hero, Jessica Abel's Art Babe, Sarah Dyer's Action Girl. Um, so there's this whole wave of women just doing comics themselves. At the same time, artists were starting to put together longer, often serious comics that could be bound like other books. In 1992, Art Spiegelman's story of the Holocaust, Mouse, became the first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer Prize. Not only did graphic novels expand the scope of the stories that comics could tell, but where they could be sold also changed. They weren't just sold at comic book shops, but at chain bookstores. That means people who would have been sneered at in the comic book shops could get their hands on some comics at Borders or Barnes & Noble. And then came manga. In 1997, Japanese hit Sailor Moon was translated into English. It sold especially well with girls. And suddenly bookstores were expanding their manga and graphic novel sections to appeal to new readers. People were realizing, like, oh yeah, girls do read comics, girls do like comics, which... To me, it seems very silly because as a girl, I liked comics. I read Archie, and I think a lot of girls did, or it seems very silly that they would say that. These days, women are still working to make the comics industry more inclusive. Mainstream comics are still dominated by men, both behind the scenes and in the stories that are told. But the internet has allowed a generation of self-publishers to put their own comics out to audiences with no publisher needed making comics careers for artists like Kate Beaton of Harka Vagrant and Hyperbole and a Half's Allie Brash. Meanwhile, on the 2014 bestseller list, newer titles featuring excellent female characters and creators like Ms. Marvel and the anti-war space drama Saga are duking it out with the pillars of the industry like Spider-Man and Thor. I think the internet has really opened up the world in a way that people have more of a voice and more of a voice to ask for what they want. I think that the comic book publishers are slow to respond, but I think they're starting to respond, and particularly Marvel, and so I think there is a ray of hope. The comics industry is always in the process of transforming, one way or another. But it seems like after years of comics fans pushing for the industry to be more inclusive, publishers are getting the message that they shouldn't ignore half of their potential readers. After all, Women have been making and reading comics since the beginning. Major thanks on this story to writer Lisa Hicks, whose Collector's Weekly article about the history of the comics industry, with lots of great pictures of Brenda Starr and many other old-timey comics, is called Women Who Conquered the Comics World. Artist Trina Robbins' book about the industry is called Pretty in Ink. Look it up.
This next story originally ran on propaganda almost two years ago, right in the heat of misogynistic attacks called Gamergate that were aimed at women who were working in the video game industry and who spoke out against sexism and racism. In response to the absolute toxic hatred of Gamergate, we decided to go positive, putting together a show that celebrated nerdy women and ladies who love video games. The original show featured a song about velociraptors and a lesson on how to play Magic the Gathering and all kinds of cool, dorky stuff. It's called Geek Girls, and you can scroll back through your podcast feed and find it if you want to. But here's one essay from the show. Check it out. In this part of the show, it's time to debunk some myths about women and video games. With help from an expert, game designer Elizabeth Sampat. Let's listen. My name is Elizabeth Sampat. Uh, I'm a game designer, and I'm here to debunk five myths about women in the game industry. Right now, there are a lot of initiatives to get young girls to use computers. Heck, there's even a game design badge in the Girl Scouts. Early outreach is important, definitely, but we need to start looking for solutions that work now. It may seem like the industry will be an egalitarian, gender parity utopia by the time that we're all playing Angry Birds 15 on the holodeck at the old folks' home, But that doesn't fix the past and current behaviors that have led to an industry dominated by white men under the age of 45. So let's talk about those five myths about women in gaming. Myth number one, women don't want to work in games. This is by far the most common sentiment. We can't force women into the industry. Women don't want to be here. There's nothing to be done. So let's just continue to have men make all of the first person shooters and all of the Farmvilles. I just have one question for those who think that women don't want to work in games. Have you asked them? I have. Using Facebook, Twitter, mailing lists, and word of mouth, I polled a large number of women who are currently employed or seeking employment in the game industry. On the surface, the numbers aren't surprising. 45% of responders say that they have always known they wanted to work in the game industry. This adds an air of truth to one of the other forms of the women don't want to work in games myth, that the game industry is only for people who are born cradling their own copy of Chrono Trigger. But let's take another look at that number. My informal poll showed that 55% of responders got into the game industry in a wide variety of ways that had nothing to do with their lifelong video game aspirations. For some, all it took was being approached by a recruiter while they were in school. Just talking to someone, asking someone if they've ever considered a job in games, is an incredibly potent recruitment tool. For a lot of women, even women who grew up loving games, the leap from enjoying games to making games is one that's difficult to make without support. It's almost a catch-22. Because only 10% of the game industry is made up of women, it's a career that never even occurs to a large number of women who would be very happy here. In 2006, I moved to a small Massachusetts town about 10 minutes away from the Vermont border called Greenfield. I happened to move in two blocks down the street from Vincent and Meg Baker, two award-winning game designers. Across the street, I met my friend Julia Bond-Ellingbow, who's also a fantastic tabletop designer. She made the game Steal Away Jordan, which explores and celebrates the heroes she grew up with, escaping and runaway slaves in the antebellum South. I hung out with these people, I played their games with them a few nights a week, and it wasn't until I was aggressively pushed by my friends to try my own hand at game design that it even occurred to me that I was capable of such a thing. 
I love what I do. Now that I make games every day, I can't imagine my life doing anything else. But it took a lot of arm twisting and encouragement for me to step out of my comfort zone. Myth number two. It's too late, there are no women to hire. This particular myth comes with a secret consolation prize. When people ask why your game company has so few women, you can just smile and shrug. There are only so many women with the skill sets required to make games, you can say, while furrowing your brow in empathy. It's a numbers game. Yes, if you're only specifically looking for senior software engineers who have gotten at least three titles through the gold master process on two different consoles, the pickings are probably a bit slim. The thing is, though, that a game company is first and foremost a company. You need people to keep the lights on and the books balanced. You need people to keep the company part going as much as the game part. I understand that there's a mindset that a lot of game makers have that says that HR and marketing and office management don't count, but study after study has shown that the best way to attract women candidates is to have women as employees. Actions are important. Employ women whenever possible and treat those women with respect. Believe me, the female candidates who interview with you will notice, even if the women they see aren't in their department. The pervasive idea that HR, marketing, and office management don't count or aren't really part of game development at your company or in the industry as a whole is in and of itself sexist. Those are the roles that are most often coded as feminine and the roles where women are visible even in male-dominated companies. Myth number three, we can't find any women who are a culture fit. Startup companies love to talk about maintaining a strong company culture and being sure that new hires are good culture fits. If you can't find any women who will fit into your company culture, have you considered that your company culture might, you know, suck? What does culture fit mean to me? It means having women and people of color on staff. It means a truly collaborative environment. It means a place where everyone treats each other with a fundamental base of respect and men take paternity leave so women don't feel weird about starting families. If someone's work habits don't fit in with your company's schedule, or they have a mindset where design is always at war with marketing, then yeah, don't hire them. But if someone didn't laugh at your Magic the Gathering joke or didn't seem excited enough when you mentioned the company fantasy football league, get over it. Myth number four. I'm a woman, I can't be part of the problem. Yeah. So, there's an idea that if you're here, in the trenches of the game industry, simply existing as a woman, you're doing something. And honestly, that idea isn't completely off base. Existing as a woman in a male space is a fundamentally rebellious act. And as I went over previously, women are more likely to join companies where women employees already exist. We're fortunate to be in an industry with trailblazers. It's hard to be the only woman, especially if you're in the middle. You need to win the approval of your male superiors and win the trust of your male inferiors. You can feel the need to assimilate, to make yourself fit into the culture around you. It's a hard, difficult, thankless journey, at least until you get to the top. Mary Church Terrell was an amazing woman who was one of the first African-American women to earn a college degree. Born to former slaves, she graduated from Oberlin University, surrounded by white male students. She was a phenomenal academic. 
And when she got to the top and paused to survey the landscape, this is what she said. And so, lifting as we climb, onward and upward we go, struggling and striving and hoping that the buds and blossoms of our desires will burst into glorious fruition ere long. Lifting as we climb has become a profound call to action in social justice spaces, reminding us of our unique responsibilities. Existing as a woman in a male space is rebellious, but it's not subversive. If we try to push through the problems, we risk getting swallowed up in them, being the cool girl in the boys' clubhouse, pushing down the ladder behind us, smugly satisfied that the no girls allowed sign doesn't apply to us. We're special, we're different, we're the exception. We're not like those other women, the ones who complain and act anxious and can't take a joke. We're the good ones. I'm going to say this as clearly and earnestly as I can. If there isn't room for you in the game industry, then screw the game industry. I don't want to be here if you can't be here. Every day, every single chance we get, we have to make space for each other. All of this feeds into the biggest myth of all, the one that everyone talks around and no one voices. Myth number five. It's not the industry's fault, it's the fault of the women. When conversations about the gender gap in the game industry come up, we'd never be so insensitive as to blame women for their own marginalization. Instead, we all nod and agree. Of course the problem isn't the women. Except for the fact that, you know, women should be more assertive. Or maybe being bossy, sorry, assertive, isn't even enough. Maybe they should go full Sheryl Sandberg and lean in and ask for more work and more responsibility and more ownership. Oh, and by the way, even if you're a single, childless woman who can afford a maid, you'll still be a bitch. So here's the thing. If we want to actually, honestly, earnestly embrace diversity of gender and experience in the game industry, we only have two choices. We can uplift that stale narrative of the model minority, the badass loner of a woman who learns how to be the cool girl in the boys club, the G.I. Jane who works twice as hard for half the recognition of her peers until one day she wakes up and she suddenly has it all because she's just as good. Or there's always the second choice. We can do the other thing, the thing that's harder, the thing that doesn't just get a few token rich white women to the top. We can stop being polite. The only way to fundamentally change the system is to acknowledge that the system as it exists is fundamentally broken. Do you know why I get frustrated when the only solution anyone ever offers to the gender gap is to mention early intervention projects and STEM education? Yes, that stuff is important, but we need to do both. We need to change our culture now as we plan for the future. My daughter Gwen is 11 years old. When she was nine, she told me she wanted to be an astrophysicist when she grows up. Then about a year ago, she told me that she still wants to do astrophysics as her hobby, but when she grows up, she's going to pursue a career as a game designer. She draws levels for her favorite platformers and puzzle games, and she wants to start learning to program in Ruby. But the thing is, I'm not really able to help her because I don't know how. I've had it great in this industry, so much better than so many women I know. And I would still do anything to keep Gwen from having some of the experiences that I've had. I've seen the way I look at her and the way that I worry, and I know without a doubt that I am part of the problem. 
Every time that I spend more energy worrying about making her tougher than I do about making the industry gentler, I'm part of the problem. But I'm ready to stop. Are you? was Elizabeth Sampat, who is now a senior game design strategist at Mindspace Agency. Follow all her writing and ideas on Twitter at Two Scooters, that's T-W-O Scooters, and at ElizabethSampat.com. So women aren't geeks, is that your conclusion? But this is some secret club based on exclusion. It feels like forever ago that we put together a whole episode about feminism and science fiction. But back in 2014, I talked with activist and scholar Walida Imarisha about how science fiction can shape social justice movements. Her ideas are just as relevant now as they were then. Or maybe even more so, as the election season seems to be inching us closer and closer toward actual dystopia. Fun fact, in her 1998 dystopian novel, Parable of the Talents, sci-fi author Octavia Butler predicted Donald Trump's campaign slogan. In Octavia Butler's grim vision of the future, a hardcore patriarchal religious leader is running for president as the head of the Christian Americans Party. His fictional campaign uses the same slogan as Donald Trump, Make America Great Again. Yikes. We live in the future, guys. And the future is terrifying. What can science fiction teach us about the future? That's one mission facing Walida Imarisha, a prolific writer, poet, professor, and anti-incarceration activist who co-edits a fiction anthology called Octavia's Brood, science fiction stories from social justice movements. A few years ago, Walida and her co-editor, Adrian Marie Brown, coined a new term to describe the kind of storytelling they're interested in, visionary fiction, which is science fiction that offers ideas, strategies, and inspiration for creating a better future. A future potentially without war, without violence, without prisons, without capitalism. Walida, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us how you got interested in reading science fiction? When do you remember first um, reading science fiction and what, what spoke to you about it? Well, I've been a science fiction nerd since since the womb. Uh, I told my mother actually one of the earliest memories that I had was watching an episode of Star Trek. And when I described it to her, she said I was two years old. So (laughs) so science fiction is is part of me and always has been. Um, And, uh, you know, I was a prolific reader as a child, and I also was a writer. And so um, science fiction was definitely one of my go-to avenues for being able to explore the fantastical, to be able to create escapes to be able to tell the stories that were in my head and to be able to explore other people's visions of uh, different worlds around us. What what science fiction writers spoke to you as a teenager or as a young person that you still find yourself coming back to today? 
Well, I was lucky enough to find a uh, Octavia Butler book when I was still in high school. And I remember it. Uh, there was a used bookstore in the town that I lived at that I would go to, and I would just spend hours looking through the stacks. And I would mostly be picking out books based on the cover if they didn't have any of the authors I liked. And I remember pulling out Octavia Butler's book, Kindred, and just standing there and staring at it because it was uh, the, the cover at that time was a t- two black women's faces passing each other. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a black woman on the cover of a science fiction book. And I was like, I don't know what this is about. I don't need to know. I'm reading this book. So I, I feel like I was lucky to have discovered Octavia in this very kind of random way because she's definitely become one of the foundational pieces of my understanding of, of the importance of science fiction to me, not just as an escape, but as a way of re-envisioning the world around us. And tell us more about that. When you you sort of have this term visionary fiction to describe the science fiction that helps us sort of imagine what a better future could be. How, how does Octavia Butler work for you in that way? And sort of what visions do you see in her work for how we could make a reality that's different than the one we're living in? Absolutely. I mean, I think that for me and for my co-editor, Adrian, Octavia embodies the principles we believe in visionary fiction. So um, I created that term to try and come up with a way of differentiating from sort of mainstream science fiction, which most often replicates the dominant paradigms around us, the social inequalities, the, you know, the lone white man who saves the world while the rest of us cower in the corner crying and hoping he blows up the Death Star or the asteroid or whatever's coming to uh, to kill us. And, you know, I we also created the term because we didn't want to argue about, well, is this really science fiction? Does this have enough sci-fi to be science fiction? It actually seems more like magical realism or perhaps alternate history because I love my nerd people, but they can argue all day long. So we were like, this this just encompasses all of that. Horror, fantasy, sci-fi, speculative fiction, anything weird and strange, that's us, right? Just, just throw it on over this way. Um, and so for us, some of the principles of visionary fiction that set it off separately from mainstream science or speculative fiction are ideas about uh, identity, understanding intersecting identities especially. We're often given you know, the token roles. Here's the one black character. Here's the one woman character. Here's the one gay character. And they're, they're very static. They're very two-dimensional. That's all there is to it. Octavia's writings always center women of color and often women of color who are dealing with um, either disability issues, mental health issues, um, or are aliens from other places, um, are dealing with uh, all sorts of different pieces coming together, working class, really showing the intersecting identities that we all live with. We're not just one thing. I think the other piece that's really important about Octavia's work is that she shows that when we actually shift folks who have been marginalized to the center, our entire vision changes, right? I mean, all of her main characters are uh, women of color, pretty much. And, you know, she's like, yeah, I don't, don't feel the need to white, write white men. There's enough of those out there. So feel free to go read those somewhere else. So I think really kind of shifting folks from being the sidelines to being the center and how that changes the view of the world around us. And let's talk about what that view of the world looks like. One thing um, you pointed out before is that sort of Octavia Butler deals with violence in a way that's different than a lot of sci-fi. Uh, there is a lot of violence in her world. Her books are, are graphic and they're sort of, they, they have sexual violence and racial-based violence as part of that reality. 
Um, but there's not a lot of sort of people blowing stuff up at the end of her books. Can you talk more about about that vision of violence in, the, in her future? Absolutely. I think that it's really important the way that Octavia engages with violence, and it's something that we want to explore through visionary fiction. Because another principle of visionary fiction is that these are not utopias that we're creating, because a utopia would be, in essence, useless, because we haven't gotten there. You know, it it's, doesn't provide us a blueprint for moving forward. Octavia Butler's novels are hard and realistic, um, but they, they, they are hopeful, and they're hopeful that change will happen, and change happens collectively from the bottom up. So, you know, again, the one lone white man, the Luke Skywalker blowing up the Death Star and saving apparently the entire, you know, known universe, but not actually addressing the institutional inequalities that created that universe, um, that's not what Octavia is writing. So rather than showing violence as this very quick, simple solution, just blow everything up and be done with it, and we've won, Octavia really explores how is violence institutionalized and also how are different forms of violence institutionalized. So, you know, sexualized violence within the context of patriarchy, racialized violence within the context of white supremacy. And then how do we begin collectively to work together to create new worlds and to shift that? And Octavia's work shows us it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be perfect. But if we work together, there is hope. We can begin to build something new. I think that's so interesting because violence is so often the, the solution in sci-fi, that you blow it up and then everything's done. You've eradicated the evil. And watching films like that, I'm always left wondering, okay, what happens next? So you, you, know, you stop the asteroid from destroying Earth, then does Earth change? You, know, you blow up the Death Star, then do the Ewoks get liberated? Or the droids. This the, is my biggest thing. The droids, those, they are the most oppressed. They're not even considered to be sentient beings. And yet they give everything, including risking their lives, to, to end the evil empire. And at the end, their, their material condition is exactly the same. They're enslaved. Who will think of the droids? Who will think of the droids? <laughs> uh, well, you um, sort of have done a lot of teaching and writing about sci-fi. So can you tell us how um, you use science fiction in in your classes and what you're hoping students will take away from doing a critical read of sci-fi? Absolutely. So I edited a, a, um, an edition of Left Turn magazine, which was a national magazine focused on visionary fiction a few years ago. We were actually lucky enough to get political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal to write an article for it. He also actually has a separate article in Octavia's Brood, the anthology. And in the article that uh, Mumia wrote for the visionary fiction section in, in Left Turn, he talks about how powerful science fiction is in getting folks to lower their guard. He, you know, he talks about, you know, if you come at especially a white person and say, let's talk about race, let's talk about racial inequalities, let's talk about institutional oppression and white supremacy, Shields go up, walls go up, folks don't want to hear about it. He's like, no, okay, well, let's talk about how these blue people are oppressing these green people. They've created centuries of, 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 of institutions and oppressions, and it's this entire systemic, you know, colonization process that continues to this day. And then the white folks are like, yeah, and then what happens, right? It can be the exact same situation, but I think one of the powerful things about science fiction is it allows us to take a step back, to remove ourselves and our ego and our, our preconceived notions of the world and really be open and say, okay, so anything can happen, so what happens next? And I think that that's one of the powerful ways that it opens a dialogue in, 
can open a dialogue in mainstream culture. Do you have any science fiction story ideas mulling around in your head? I have five billion of them. <laughs> can, can you share one with us? I have more science fiction stories in my head than planets in the Federation. <laughs> um, well, so I'm working on um, I'm working on one story right now that um, is focused on prisons, and so um, it's it's in this world where where mutants exist, um, kind of a la X Men. Um, but the major mutation is being able to um, manipulate other people's emotions. And so it follows this, um, they're called mutecons, mutant controllers. So basically people go into prisons and the mutecons come by every day and um, reflect back their, their negative emotions onto them. And depending on your, your severity, they, they have different levels of it. And depending on your sentence, how long you're there. And so this, this mutecon, who's a young black woman, actually got caught for a crime and was given the choice to either become the prison guard, basically, or become a prisoner. So she is there, but she doesn't want to be there. And she's serving out a sentence as well. She has to do this for five years, and then she can, she can leave. And so, you know, she tells herself these stories that, well you know, these people deserve this, look at all these bad feelings they've had, obviously they've done something or they wouldn't have these feelings. And she finally ends up having a, uh, a young mutant who can communicate telepathically with her because she's not allowed to have any contact with them. She sees them through glass. And he basically is like, no, let me show you what's going on in the minds of these people you're torturing, you know? And she's like, wow, these people were just trying to survive, and I have been torturing them for years. Um, and so she begins to question the entire structure of this, you know, mutant punishment prison system. I cannot wait to read that book. <laughs> if you could stop doing everything else you're doing in the world <laughs> and write that book, um, that'd be great. <laughs> so that I can buy it. I will get on it. That was Walida Imarisha, whose writing and poetry can be found at walida.com. That's W-A-L-I-D-A-H dot com. Walida Imarisha is still up to really interesting work these days. This year, she published a nonfiction book telling three stories of incarceration. It's called Angels with Dirty Faces. Thanks for listening to our show over the last three years. Remember, we'll be back with you next week with a brand new episode. Listeners of the Bitch Media Podcasts care about society and our future. And so does Oregon State University. Today's workplace requires employees who think creatively and dig for the big insights that drive change. So expand your passion with the skills that will allow you to be a leader in political science. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash political. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker, Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google 
on typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. We added the music of two awesome bands to this best of episode. You might have recognized the sounds of La Luce and the double clicks on this episode. Look up both those bands, La Luce and the double clicks. They are rad. Thanks for listening.